0: Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today are Kate Bailey and Emma Ajimang, Deputy Personal Finance Editor and Personal Finance Writer to Investors Chronicle, and special guest James DeBunson, Co-Manager of Henderson Alternative Strategies Trust. After years of poor returns, value-style investing looks to be making a return to favour, and this shift seems particularly pronounced among exchange-traded funds – ETFs for short, with some ETFs which track value indices substantially outperforming those invested in quality and low volatility stocks in 2016. However, until last year, value ETFs and indices underperformed. Kate, why was this? Um, Well, we've had a bit of a rotation generally
1: in kind of investment style and in terms of the kind of sectors and things which have been doing well, um, which happened the end of last year, kind of mid to end of last year. So before then, um, we were having very low bond yields, interest rates, record lows, negative yields in some areas. And so the kind of things that were doing badly were things like banks and oil stocks were doing very badly. And so we had a range of factors, which meant that, in fact, value indices and value-flavored exchange-traded funds were doing badly. And the kind of bond-like stocks and these kind of slower growth profile stocks, but with steady income streams, people often refer to them as bond proxies. And those are the kind of stocks which you would tend to find more in growth indices and more in low volatility indices. Those were the things doing very well. So until last year, we did have this kind of situation where value was doing badly, growth doing quite well, um, momentum doing well, and low volatility was doing well. Okay, so what changed all that? Well, as I said, the kind of mid to end of last year, we had the situation where interest rates started to come up, um, inflation started rising again, um, and then we had bond yields rising. So when all of that happened, these more bond proxy stocks really started doing less well, and they had become incredibly expensive. So people started rotating out of those and into things like banking stocks, banks which obviously do better as interest rates rise um, and into oil stocks general energy stocks we had this massive shift when the things that we had been doing well started to do badly and all of these sectors which had been you know really lagging for kind of six years um, came up to the top again and that meant a switch from growth from momentum back into value.
0: Okay, and what kind of level of outperformance did some of these value indices make against broader indices in 2016? Um, yeah, I mean, when, it should be said that
1: when we're talking about indices, um, so msci for example uh, an index provider you can buy value indices in european stocks in us stocks in global stocks so i've had a look at you know quite a few of them um and just an example uh, the msci all country world index value weighted that returned um, almost 35% in 2016 and that's against msci all country world index 29.3 it doesn't sound like that dramatic an outperformance maybe but what's really stark is that the value weighted index did outperform quality, outperform momentum, volatility, and large growth, and it's the first time that that's happened since two thousand and eight. Okay, and can this trend continue? Well, there, there are reasons to think it can continue. I mean, in a sense, this cyclicals rally, this return to strength of things like banks and energy, has kind of just begun compared to how long, you know, growth and, and these bond proxies were outperforming. It's fairly early days. And if we do keep getting a rise in inflation, we had another rise just last week, um, and if rates do keep rising, there's there's definitely reason to think that the higher-yielding stocks which populate these value indices will be the ones that do perform better um, obviously it has had quite a rally so you know it could be a volatile ride but there are definitely reasons to think it would continue and certainly more reasons than for the other kind of broad stocks like like the volatility indices for example i think is, value would be the one to back
0: okay so if you want to try and um, ride this some um, value rise what um, etfs could you consider well most um etf
1: providers do have they they're called factors this is called kind of factor investing when you pick um a characteristic like value or growth um most providers actually have a range now and or are certainly launching them i mean some examples include ishares edge msci usa value factor spider msci usa value weighted in the us and then you get things on the global DBX trackers, MSCI world value factor, for example, you can you can have a look at most of the main providers and, and they
0: would have some examples in the main equity areas. Okay. Now, um, we've been talking a lot about value, but are there any other type of indices and in ETFs um, in any region or, or sector that look like they might do well this year? Well,
1: I did have a look at um, a study by SEM Direct, which has actually looked at the top and bottom performing smart beta ETFs. And by smart beta, I'm referring to any, anything which is weighted other than market cap. So that includes these factors. And this study has taken a look at which, um, which smart beta styles were the, were the best performance last year. And in fact, it's come out as showing that A lot of these dividend-focused ones, so these would be indices which select the stocks based on the highest yield. So dividend-focused ETFs did really well last year. Um, And so, for example, PowerShares, FTSE, RAFI, Emerging Markets, and that's one which is value and also has a focus on, on yield, um, that delivered 29.1 performance over the broader MSCI Emerging Markets Index. So that's quite dramatic. Um, and other ones like Wisdom Tree, Emerging Markets, Small Cap Dividend did very well. So I guess that there's reason to think that those strategies, because they reinvest the income, um, could outperform and they, they have been quite impressive over the longer term.
0: Are there any types of index or ETF that are unlikely to do very well this year? As I've said,
1: these value indices are are kind of interesting ones to back. And potentially the US, a good area. Um, Growth, maybe emerging markets too.
0: Won't do well.
1: Sorry, did you say won't? Okay. Um, Well, I think... In terms of the ones that won't do well, because we've had this kind of rotation away from growth, away from momentum, um, I think it's those kind of areas where you would expect to do less well, particularly if yields do continue to rise. Um, things like low volatility as well, because those tend to be populated by these more bond proxy stocks if we keep having this rotation towards value away from those then low volatility strategies will also do less well Um, they also tend to outperform when we have particularly choppy markets so if we continue to have kind of rising markets those will underperform so would be ones to avoid momentum has definitely been tumbling recently um, and I think that would not be one to follow right now.
0: Okay thank you Kate a really useful explanation. Now, equity investing gets a lot of attention, but as these securities can be very volatile, it's important that investors have a balanced and well-diversified portfolio. This can include assets like bonds, but larger investors with higher risk appetites could consider even more unusual areas. James, you run an investment trust, Henderson Alternative Strategies, which specialises in allocating to some particularly unusual assets. What kind of areas do you invest in?
2: Um well we break the alternatives universe down into sort of three areas really. And the first one would just be slightly non mainstream equities or bonds. So they're the same they're the same instruments, but they're a bit more niche. So that might include things like private equity, so unlisted companies. Um micro cap equities, so they're still listed, but they're very small and potentially illiquid. Um and then we also look at emerging and frontier markets, um and specialist areas of credit. In fact, you know, it's a very sectoral um, uh, biases uh, within those credit funds. So those are the sort of non-mainstream equities and bonds. And then in alternative assets themselves, you're looking at things like infrastructure, renewable energy, commodities, um, property even is sometimes in people's alternatives universe. And then you have quite niche things such as reinsurance, farmland, timber, um, even th- weird things like litigation finance is is an alternative asset class, and then you 've got alternative strategies and by that I mean essentially hedge funds or um, absolute return funds where the uh, fund managers are are generally investing in equities or bonds, but they 're doing it in a very unconstrained way, and they have extra tools at their disposal, such as being able to short. Asset classes, i.e., make money from uh, falls in their asset prices.
0: Okay, now why should investors consider including some of these rather unusual sounding things in their portfolios, particularly at the moment?
2: Well, I think that the perennial reasons to to invest in alternatives, um, and I always think you should have some alternatives in in a portfolio, are they give you diversification. So I think everyone understands that. You know, even if you have an equity portfolio, having two or three equities is not sufficiently well diversified. It's, it's risky. And it's just another iteration of that. So if you add alternative asset classes, which have different drivers and sensitivities to what's going on in the economy um, and to interest rates, etc., that gives you an extra layer of diversification. Um, but fundamentally, these asset classes have good attractive um, return characteristics and risk um, characteristics. You know, they give you a decent return for the level of risk that you you take. So I think those are the the two reasons and and why now. Um, I think mainstream asset classes, equities and bonds, they both look pretty fully valued. I mean bonds especially, even though bonds have come off a bit. Um, it, I'm fairly confident in, in predicting. We've we've seen the low in, in government bond yields, um, which means you're probably going to lose money from here because the yields are not very attractive. And equity markets, even though we prefer equities to bonds, um, it's hard to uh, to really make a strong case for for valuations at this stage. Um, traditionally, when interest rates start going up, which they are, have done in the states, and we expect them to keep going up, equities can uh, can come under pressure unless earnings come through in a very strong way, and, uh, and there are some challenges to that.
0: Okay, now thinking about the, um, you know, what possible. Risks face investors at the moment, um and to address these risks, which would be the best alternative assets for mitigating against them, and perhaps any shocks to the equity markets.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I guess the risks are all fairly well. uh I was going to say understood. I'm not sure anyone truly understands what uh, Donald Trump <laughs> uh poses as a risk. Uh, we've we've heard a lot of rhetoric. We don't know what he'll actually do. The market seems to have reacted positively to the things that are potentially growth positive but have, uh, have so far seemed to have ignored all the uh, potentially damaging things like protectionist policies and trade wars and and just tweets that come out of the blue that might create an international incident. Um, so you've got those political risks, you've got European elections um, and you've obviously got the Brexit negotiations. Um, but I think the key things are valuations uh, as I mentioned before and, and what happens to interest rates because That is key in determining, you know, uh, people's perception of the value of all of these asset classes. Um, The alternatives that we really like in this kind of environment where we see volatility picking up um, are hedge funds, I would say, first and foremost, um, because they do have this flexibility to make money um, when things are going south, when, you know, when asset prices are falling. Um, They're not. You know, there's no guarantee that they're going to do that. But, you know, our job when we're running the Henderson Alternative Strategies Trust is to go out and find managers who we think can at, at least preserve capital when markets are falling. But some of them, you know, have very much a, uh, a skill that they've proven in the past where they can make money when markets are falling. Um, and, um, you know, it's a rare skill. Um, but, uh, but you know, there's a lot of fund managers out there um that we trawl through to find the ones that we think that can do that.
0: Okay. Now, what kind of hedge funds do you particularly like and why?
2: Well, the Henson Alternative Strategies Trust, we're, we're still over the long term trying to outperform equities. So, you know, we're not looking for the really low risk um, sorts of strategies and asset classes. We we do take risk and we expect to be rewarded for that risk. So the hedge funds that we like at the moment are generally invested in equities Um they tend to be able to keep up with equity markets when markets are going up, um, but they have proven track record of, of preserving capital quite well in, in more volatile markets. Um, and we quite like the more contrarian style investors. So as we've just been talking about, the big rotation that we've seen from from quality growth assets into into value assets. Um, we've got one manager in particular who uh, runs a fund uh, called the Majedi Tortoise Fund, Um He's a very contrarian investor. He was very early into some of these beaten-up value stocks um, and made extremely good returns last year. And those are the sorts of strategies that we like and managers we like.
0: Okay. Um, and um, what other recent asset allocation moves have you made and um, you know what's driven your decision to do it?
2: We've got quite a high weighting towards um, funds and um, assets, well, funds and strategies that um, – primarily invest in bank loans. So the great thing about bank loans is that they have floating rate coupons. Um, so essentially, it's you know, it's like a bond. In many respects, you're lending money to a counterparty. Um, so the key thing is to to try and make sure that that counterparty is going to pay you back. But the, uh, the most attractive thing at the moment is that the coupons that you receive are floating and they uh, will upwardly adjust as... The interest rate goes up. So there's an obvious attraction from that because interest rates are going up. A lot of them are um, based in the US, so are very sensitive to what goes on in um, in uh, at the Federal Reserve. And they looked as though they were reasonably under-owned last year because I think people started to get fed up <laughs> waiting for interest rates to finally go up. But we think we're very much in a tightening cycle, a rate rising cycle. Um, and we don't think you want to be owning nominal fixed interest bonds. You want to be owning uh, f- uh, floating rate instruments such as these. So that's one of our, our big sort of asset allocation changes during 2016, which is paying off quite, quite nicely.
0: OK. Now, we've just been talking about value. Are alternative assets good value at the moment? And when you're choosing a fund or an asset area, um, how important a consideration is the value
2: yeah, it, it's no different looking at alternatives to looking at mainstream um, asset classes. Value is the key determinant in our mind of, of your future returns that you're going to receive. I think one of the areas at the moment that we think is really good value is listed private equity. So private equity exhibits many of the characteristics that public equity markets do. And in fact, you know, the pricing that you get on your private equity fund is is broadly um related to what's going on in public equity markets. Um, but at the moment, um, you can buy these listed private equity funds uh, on a double-digit, sometimes 20% discount to their net asset value. Um, so there's a handful of them based in London or listed in London um, that are trading in our minds as very cheap valuation compared to public markets. And the fact is that when these funds are selling the Companies that they own and have invested in five, six, seven years ago, they are achieving a much higher valuation that they're actually carrying them at. So they're they're very conservatively valued um, the underlying companies that they they own. And we're in an environment where it's very uh, it's very much driven by MA, merger and uh, acquisition activity because it's quite hard for the company chief executives to achieve organic growth in a in a in a slow growth world. And so people are going out and buying revenues by by acquiring other companies. Um, And that's great for these private equity funds that have quite mature portfolios of very well run companies and they're selling them at a large premium to to the um, carrying value. So that's the area of value.
0: I suppose the only issue with private equity investment trusts is relative to perhaps the summer. The um, overall fund discount to NAV have generally come in. Would you say it's still a good value? I mean, they're on discounts, but not on the wide discounts we saw perhaps a few months ago.
2: Yes, the um, the discounts have certainly narrowed. But um, in the past, and I'm going back a few years now, certainly uh, pre-financial crisis, some of them traded at a premium. And I think it's quite right that they should trade at a premium, um, given when they're selling the underlying companies they own, They're achieving 25 to 40% uplifts on the carrying value. Um, Now, obviously, you can argue that they're selling their best assets and not everything they own is going to have that kind of uplift. Um, But I think some of the concerns that people had in the past about listed private equity was, were they conservatively valuing things? Were they overcommitted in terms of the funds that they said they were going to invest in private equity? Um, And the amount of leverage that was involved um those concerns have, have been mitigated to a very large extent so we think that those discounts double digit discounts are, are unmerited given their really really impressive long-term track records um and the quality of the assets that that are in those trusts
0: okay and what will be some examples of uh, private equity investment trusts within henderson alternative strategies
2: um well we've got um we've got some specialist private equity things that that um uh, focus on particular industries. There's something called Riverstone Energy, which is a play on US shale oil and gas, which um, seems like a maybe a, a troubled area. You know, we've seen the oil price absolutely decimated. It's come back a little bit, but, um, you know, we're not, we're not in the same sort of environment where we 18 months ago when oil prices were over $100. Um, but the great thing about this fund is it was investing at the time when there was a lot of stress in the market, and oil prices had, had you know, gone towards twenty you know, high 20s. Um, so it was able to use its firepower to acquire assets at a really attractive valuation. So we like that. On a more mainstream um, level, uh, Pantheon is a global fund of funds. So it's a highly, highly diversified investment trust uh, run by a very experienced team. You get um, exposure to sort of all areas of private equity, Um, all around the world Um, but the key thing for us is it's a mature portfolio so they're not buying things at the moment so so much they're selling and i think that's a key thing that um, uh, is has some commonality across a lot of the mainstream investment uh, private equity investment trusts that we're invested in is they're more in selling mode than investing mode because as i mentioned before valuations everywhere have have crept up
0: Okay. Now, um, we've been focusing on the virtues of alternative assets, but there's always two sides to things. So, um, regarding the sort of things that you invest in, what would you say are the main risks?
2: Well, the, uh, the risks are the same as with, um, with mainstream asset classes. You know, you have to keep an eye on what's going on with interest rates, default rates, etc. Um, I think the challenges uh, for investing in alternatives, um, there, tends, there can be some more complexity they can be more esoteric and so less familiar to, to investors. So, more work required, more due diligence, um, less of a track record as well. A lot of these strategies um, are newer, just because you know we have always have progress in financial markets and new strategies come along, um, and so there's maybe a little more of a leap of faith involved. Um, what we try and do is, you know, when we're doing our research, is to really ensure that we've properly due diligence the manager um, and all their assertions and claims, etc., can be backed up with with data, um, data which you can't get quite often from public sources. Which you would be able to if you went and tried to find a, you know, a, a US equity fund manager. If they've got a long track record, it's all there and it's readily readily available. If you find a a manager of renewable energy assets you know you need to dig a bit deeper um, i think the other things liquidity is a key issue um, these asset classes are not readily bought and sold um, and therefore the vehicle you're investing in is very important um, and then the last thing is they can involve leverage private equity involves uh, leverage to some degree hedge funds can involve uh, leverage um, so it's really understanding um how much um debt or um financial gearing there is in any of these uh, vehicles or strategies
0: okay well bearing all this in mind then is there anything you're avoiding at the moment
2: yeah I, I mean i think that's the that's the important thing The the trust that that um that we run at henderson the alternative strategies trust has this phenomenally broad remit which is wonderful it's it's fascinating we can invest in anything really um so discipline is required um, not to go and buy things that that um, may not be of the highest quality just because they sound interesting. Um, a couple of areas that have come to prominence recently that are popular with alternative um, managers or even fund, pension funds, um, one of them is uh, reinsurance. So this is basically you're taking on some of the risk that an insurance company might have. So what you're essentially saying is in return for a fixed coupon, a fixed payment, I will take on some of your liabilities. And the the biggest area uh, where you can invest here is um, to do with US wind storm risk or hurricane risk. So what you're essentially betting on is there isn't going to be a massive hurricane that hits a heavily populated area (laughs) on the eastern seaboard in return for, Mm. you know, cash plus uh, at the moment, only about six, seven, eight percent, um, and for that, for us, that's not a sufficient return for the risk you're taking. Because I suspect no one knows whether there's going to be a big hurricane this year. Well, I don't suspect. I know that no one knows that. And the thing is, it just because there hasn't been a massive hurricane that's hit the east coast of uh, the states since Hurricane Katrina in two thousand and five, doesn't mean. There isn't going to be one next year
0: perhaps but you do you're, for one I don't know well so. I think
2: the further away yeah. you are from one the nearer yeah. you are to mm. the next one I think mm. that's pretty logical, but in 2006 you could get um, just after Hurricane Katrina you would be paid something like 15, sixteen percent to take this risk for, for a year now you're getting half that but mm. it, but there's no less risk, and a lot of money's gone into that area um, and we think um, uh, we think it's best avoided.
0: Okay. Now, with alternative assets, I suppose there's a different number of ways to get access to them. You can invest directly, or there's various funds. What do you think is the best way to um, get your exposure to them?
2: Well, direct. if you invest directly, um, you tend to have to be tied up for a very long time, particularly with private equity. Typically, you have to make a commitment for 10 years, um, and it's a slow process. Um You know, they tend to take a couple of years just making the investments. So you don't really see a return for a few years and your money's tied up. I mean, the returns can often be very good, but um, it's beyond the remit of most investors. Similar with infrastructure assets. Infrastructure is a good, non-economically sensitive uh, asset class uh, quite often. I mean, if you invest in things like... um, Vehicles that invest in schools or own schools, hospitals, prisons, that sort of thing. It doesn't matter what's going on in the economy. Um, those things will still continue to turn, turn out a revenue and a revenue that's often uh, fundamentally backed by the government. Um, but the problem is you you can't do that yourself unless mm. you've got several hundred million pounds um, or a very long time horizon. Um, so the closed ended funds are... In our minds, the, the sort of perfect vehicle for getting access to illiquid asset classes in a relatively liquid way.
0: Okay, um, I suppose there's is an issue there. If you invest in a closed-end fund, it's listed on a market, so even if the underlying assets are doing well, the share price could go down with mainstream equities. What's your thoughts there? I mean,
2: it's the unavoidable sort of side effect of, of having this liquidity provision. That, that you get from a closed ended fund or an investment trust for us as very active fund managers. It also provides opportunities because discounts suddenly widen for no particularly, you know, sound fundamental reasons. And, and that's great for us because we can, we can take advantage of that, but it can, it can be annoying because sometimes you see that discount widen for no good reason um, of an asset um, or a fund that you hold and it can be frustrating. But um it comes with opportunities as well.
0: Okay, thank you, James. Some really interesting insights into alternative assets and Henderson Alternative Strategies Trust. Finding investments with an attractive yield at a reasonable price can seem like mission impossible. But an area that's done well recently and offers high yields is emerging market debt, bonds issued by governments and corporates in developing countries. Emma, you've been looking at emerging market debt. Why has it been doing well? Well, emerging markets in general, Leonora, have done
3: very well this year, driven by strong fundamentals and a real shift in investor sentiment. You remember at the start of 2016, they were having such a torrid time. But at the end of the year, they ended up one of the strongest sectors. But one area of emerging markets that has got less attention is emerging market debt funds. And considering that they have um, delivered very strong returns, an average of 26.1% over the last year, something to, to look at.
0: Okay, I mean, that's um, a strong return. What about the yields? What kind of yields do emerging market bonds and funds sort of offer?
3: Well, this is one one of the reasons why this area is very attractive, because they tend to yield a lot more than developed market debt funds. So you can expect yields between about 4 to 7%, which is, is obviously very high.
0: Okay. I mean, that sounds really attractive. But um, with high return, you tend to get high risk. So what are the downsides to these bonds and the funds that invest in them?
3: You're absolutely right. Um, it's always useful to remember that higher yield investments does tend to indicate higher risk. And one of the main issues with emerging markets generally is volatility. So that's something that you can expect to to receive in this area in emerging market debt as well. Alongside that, you've also got to look out for lower corporate governments and often less stable politics. Of all, at the moment, you could argue that um, things have been a little bit more unpredictable in the West as well. With emerging market debt, you've also got to consider the currency risk. And this is particularly important because many of these funds are denominated in US dollars. So the fate of bond funds is going to be connected to the strength of the US dollar. So that's another risk that you need to be aware of if you're going to choose to invest in this area.
0: Okay, now you said um, these funds, although they invest in emerging markets, invest in, um, they're denominated in US dollars. Mm-hmm. Is is that that's the right. case of all of them or are there different types? Um, there are
3: different types. There are two main types of bonds. Bonds, as I said, that are denominated in US dollars and that's sometimes called hard currency and bonds that are denominated in the country's local currency. And there's different aspects you need to consider. So local currency tends to be more volatile, which can impact you know, your total returns. Hard currency, as I said, is linked to the US economy. And if a dollar strengthens, it means that the value of a debt is going to rise, making it harder for borrowers to resurface that debt and therefore increasing the risk of default. So that's something else you need
0: to consider. Okay. Now, um, what funds could investors consider to get exposure to emerging market debt? Um some of the funds that our analysts liked
3: were BlackRock Emerging Markets Debt Bond Fund, which is a hard currency fund, and it generated a cumulative return of 70% over five years and has an ongoing charge of 0.87. Um, another fund that was that we looked at was MNG Emerging Markets Bond Fund, and that has a yield of 4.5% um, and generated returns of 61% over five years. Uh, Its ongoing charge is 0.79. If you're interested in local currency funds, one of the ones that was mentioned to us was Pictet's Emerging Market Local Currency Debt Fund, which has a yield of 5.8%, so strong yield there, and an ongoing charge of 0.99%
0: okay some um yeah, some attractive yields and returns james you've obviously look at slightly different areas um do you have you had any exposure to emerging market debt and henderson alternative strategies and, and what generally do you think of emerging market bonds
2: yes we we do at the moment we think they look pretty good value um despite the really strong returns from from last year as a calendar year. the end of the year post donald trump's um election actually saw some some price weakness based on his slightly antagonistic uh, rhetoric towards um, trading partners, uh, particularly in emerging markets like like Mexico. So they sold off quite a lot and a lot of money came out of uh, emerging market bond funds. Um, And that's always a, a sort of sign for us to... To, uh, to start looking, because we actually think fundamentals are pretty strong in emerging markets. Not all of them trade with the US. Uh, Mexico, obviously, is, is very reliant on it, but it's a big universe. Um, so to go to an active manager who can actually pick individual countries and their bonds, um, I think there's, there's good mo- money to be made. Um, the route that we've gone down is slightly niche, as you'd expect, for the Alternative Strategies Trust. We've bought a short-duration bond fund uh, managed by ashmore so ashmore are a specialist in emerging markets Um, they've got 90 investment professionals so they're big but all they do is emerging markets the short duration element means that they only buy bonds that have a maturity of say one to three years which means they have great visibility about whether they're going to get their money back at the end of the period which is which is benefit Um, if you look at a normal bond fund it might have duration of which is the sensitivity to interest rates of more like six seven eight years and they are sensitive to what happens in u.s interest rates it's important to to make that point it's not what interest rates are doing so much in their country although that is important but it's what happens at the federal reserve as well so if interest rates are going up there is a headwind for emerging market bonds in that respect so we've gone for the short duration element because that mitigates the interest rate risk and it mitigates you know the the longer term risks of investing in something where you're not going to get your money back for you know five to ten years so we think it's a we're still getting a nice return we're still getting a yield of seven and a half percent and it's a blend of sovereign bonds and corporate bonds uh, in emerging markets.
0: Okay, thank you, James. And Emma, some really useful points. That brings us to the end of today's podcast. So it just remains to thank Kate Beale and Emma Ajimang, Deputy Personal Finance Editor and Personal Finance Writer to Investors Chronicle, and special guest, James DeBunson, co-manager of Henderson Alternative Strategies Trust. You can read more on value investing and emerging market debt in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle on the website. Thank you for listening.